0: Thank you everyone for coming today to the first talk in this year's series of the London Aesthetics Forum. Uh, we are generously supported by the British Society of Aesthetics and very grateful to them for their support. Today we're delighted to have Jason Geyser from the University of Oxford who will be talking to us about pictorial experience and the perception of rhythm. Great, thanks Andrew, so it's very nice to be here. I think I did speak at the London Aesthetics Forum once before, a few years ago, on Conrad Fiedler and non-cognitive content, but this is going to be much more (laughs) accessible. So this comes out of an invitation that I was given to uh, contribute to a volume edited by Andy Hamilton and Max Patterson um, for Oxford University Press on the philosophy of rhythm, and it's quite a substantial volume. But all of the other contributions are either written by musicologists, philosophers of music, Um, people who work on poetry or people who work on dance and I think I was the token representative from the visual arts as it were and for a long time I was stumped as to what to write about Uh, and then I thought I'd do something more historical and philosophical I was interested in why it was that abstract painters took music as a model for their practice. Um, and I was thinking about the way in which people like Roger Fry and others use the term rhythm to characterise features of their work, and I was interested in putting some pressure on that to see whether those sorts of claims held up. Uh-huh. But as I started to think about it more, the, the issues became increasingly interesting to me, and I, I, I hope, I don't know, well, we'll see whether they are as rewarding as they think they are. And they moved from a sort of, my, my own interest moved from a broadly historical set of concerns about that particular moment in the development of Western art into a more general set of questions about whether um, what I'm going to call the graphic arts can have a rhythm at all. Okay, so it's largely a written paper, but I hope it's in such a way that um, I'm not just um, speaking long sentences at you. So can a painting have a rhythm? Uh, This apparently simple question provides a means of thinking about some complex issues. While paintings and other examples of graphic art, such as drawings and engravings, are frequently described as rhythmic or as possessing rhythmic features, it's far from clear how such observations are to be understood. Now, the central problem facing any attempt to extend the concept of rhythm to the graphic arts is that rhythm is standardly recognised to be an inherently temporal phenomenon. Rhythmic structure or organisation unfolds in time. So here's just two standard quotations, and then I realise I can't see them. Um, (laughs) that rhythm in the full sense of the word, sorry, rhythm, in the full sense of the word, everything pertaining to the time aspect of music as distinct from the aspect of pitch. Or um, rhythm refers to the entire time aspect of music and more specifically, a rhythm refers to the particular arrangement of long and short notes in a musical passage. Um, So I'm not placing any particular weight on those quotations. They're simply representative of what you find if you look um, in the literature. Okay, and even if we turn our attention to natural phenomena, um, such as the beat of the human heart, uh, the crash of waves on the shore, uh, the way we swing our arms when we walk, or the movements that accompany certain kinds of physical work, um, we still find the same temporal frame of reference. Okay, so if a rhythm is essentially durational, how can a static array of marks and lines be rhythmic? Um, Even a minimal definition of rhythm as pattern in time would appear to exclude the non-temporal or spatial patterns exhibited by painting and the other graphic arts. So to put the point in a more productive way, we might ask, what stands to be gained from characterising the repetition and variation of a two-dimensional pattern of marks or shapes as rhythmic? Why not simply identify it as a complex spatial pattern and be done with it? what extra work is being done by characterising this as a rhythm? Um, maybe I'll show you one. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you know Max Bill, um, so-called concrete artists. This is Rhythm in Five Movements. I thought I'd just start with a strong counter case. <laughs> okay. So there's an older tradition, uh, frequently identified with Lessing's Laocoon, uh, that sets up this basic contrast between um, temporally organised art forms, such as music and literature, and static or spatial art forms, such as painting or sculpture. Um, and on that model, you know seems fairly clear that um, if, if rhythm is temporal, then we're not going to be, it's not going to be connected to a static art form like painting and sculpture. But I think A Moment's Thought shows us that if we are to investigate the concept of rhythm in the visual arts, it's clear that we need to consider not only the shapes or marks out of which a work is made and the ways in which they are ordered, but also the kinds of experience that the array can stimulate in the viewer. So once we acknowledge that the process of looking at a painting is something that takes place over time, painting can no longer be excluded from consideration, simply on the grounds that it's static and spatially organized. Um, For it's conceivable that spatial patterns can be designed in such a way that they are apprehended by the viewer in a temporally ordered sequence. This would allow what I shall term pictorial experience to possess or be sensitive to rhythmic structure and thus to meet the minimum requirement of attending to temporal rather than merely spatial phenomena. Yeah. Um, so the move pretty straightforward, is once you stop thinking simply about the static array of the marks on the canvas and you think about what happens in the temporal experience of the viewer of those marks, then you've got the temporal frame which can at least, in principle, allow um, for, for rhythmic phenomena. Okay, but what I want to do today is to put forward a number of considerations that are intended to cast doubt on this proposal, and uh, and this position I'm going to defend, which is that pictorial experience takes place in time, and thus is successive, but it cannot be temporally structured in a sufficiently determinate manner to sustain the kind of attentional focus required for the communication of even simple rhythmic patterns. So although my conclusions are largely negative, I believe that there are valuable insights to be gained from investigating whether the concept of rhythm has application in the arts beyond the paradigm cases of music, poetry and dance. And the approach I'm going to adopt is for the most part argument-based, but I'm also going to refer to some empirical studies. Um, In the final part of the paper, I'm going to consider the evidence provided by recent developments in eye-tracking technology that allow the gaze movements of viewers um, to be analysed. And this offers some support um, for the claim that picture perception is internally discontinuous and so highly selective. Okay, let me give you the next bit. Okay. okay. So, one intuitive approach to the problem I've identified is to link the perception of rhythm in a work of graphic art to the rhythmic application of brushstrokes or other graphic marks, and thus to identify it as an imaginative response to the movements of the artist in making the work. When you look at something like this it's hard not to think of the the strokes that are involved in making it Um, now although there are instances for which this explanation may hold i don't think it can be generalized so i'm just going to part that for the moment i'm going to come back to it and i'll explain why at a later stage so instead i want to begin where this whole project started and that's by considering some of the ways in which the established meaning of the term rhythm as it is deployed in reference to music Has been taken up by artists and critics and extended to include the graphic arts. So as is well known in the late 19th and early 20th century music took on a special role as an example of an art form that could move the listener without any directly represented content or subject matter. However even before the emergence of non-representational or abstract art the term rhythm was used to designate the formal qualities of an artwork often in contradiction to its represented content. So Vasily Kandinsky, for example, uh, uses the term in this sense in the final section of his On the Spiritual in Arts in 1911. And it's all to be found that same year in the more sober prose of the English critic uh, Roger Fry. Yeah, here we go. Um, So this is Fry he says, uh, particular rhythms of line and particular harmonies of colour have their spiritual correspondences and tend to arouse now one set of feelings, now another. The artist plays upon us by the rhythm of line, by colour, by abstract form, and by the quality of the matter he employs. Rhythm is the fundamental and vital quality of painting, as of all the arts. Representation is secondary to that, and must never encroach on the more ultimate and fundamental quality of rhythm. And again, I would say this is just representative of something that many people were saying at that time um, rather than anything specific to how he formulates the claims so after the so-called breakthrough to full abstraction we find artists explicitly characterizing their work as a rhythm in line or color Um, so for example um, Sonia Delaunay produced a series of paintings from the late 1930s with titles such as rhythm colored rhythm and syncopated rhythm uh, I don't know if any of you saw it, there was a retrospective of her work at Tate Modern last year. Um, and it actually had a nice, gave us a nice opportunity to view several of these paintings together uh, in a single room which was dedicated to rhythm and abstraction. So Delaunay's use of repeated motifs such as circles and curved bands of colour allows for subtle variations of line, colour and form, organised around one or more axes that subdivide the paintings into parts. If we are to take the designation of these works as rhythms, or coloured rhythms, seriously, we need to explore the suggestion that just as sound can be organised in rhythmic temporal patterns, so colours and shapes can be organised in rhythmic spatial patterns. Now, although this use of the term rhythm is intuitively accessible, we quickly encounter difficulties if we ask ourselves basic questions such as what is the rhythm of this painting and could I tap it out or could I move in time to it? Um, So this really came home to me at the exhibition. I I went with a a colleague of mine, uh, an art historian from Warwick, and I started asking these questions. Well, okay, what is the rhythm? You know, you you tap it and I'll follow you. You know, the sort of thing, you know, the basic things you would do with any rhythm, um, you know, can you ask what time signature it's in, whether it's a fast or slow rhythm, all those basic questions seem very hard to answer in relationship to these paintings, even though they're all called rhythms. So musicologists call this uh, entrainment. Entrainment is the capacity to move your body by tapping a foot or clapping your hands um, to a, a rhythmic pulse and to be able to do that um, in synchronisation with other people who listen to the music. You entrain to the music. So the capacity for entrainment that plays such a central role in explaining our responses to musical rhythm seems to have no equivalent in relation to works of graphic art. It is highly implausible to suggest that several viewers of the same painting could coordinate their actions in response to a discernible rhythmic structure. Indeed, there seems to be no meaningful equivalent to the basic building blocks of rhythm in Western music, the establishment of a regular pulse or tactus and its subdivision into metrical units. OK, so it may seem obtuse to consider requirements that are proper to the temporal art of music rather than the spatial art of painting. However, since as we've seen rhythm, since reference to time is definitional for the concept of rhythm as it's employed elsewhere, we risk losing our grip on the meaning of the term if we apply it to spatial phenomena without any temporal reference. Yeah. Um, and to do so is to call redundancy. we would no longer have any way of marking the distinction between a spatial pattern and a rhythmic spatial pattern. We need to know what work the concept of rhythm um, is carrying out for us. Otherwise, it can simply be replaced by any number of other terms, or as the quotation from Roger Fry suggests, it simply serves as a placeholder for concern with formal properties that is generalizable across all the arts but lacks any real specificity. The only option available to us, or so I wish to argue, is to consider whether a painting such as Delaunay's Rhythm Colour Number 1076 is designed in such a way that it can guide the responses of the viewer as these take place over time. The presence of features such as the repetition and variation of identifiable motifs, the placement of stresses or accents through different intensities of light and shade and different hues of colour and the creation of subdivisions and relations of symmetry and asymmetry around the axes, all of which correspond to devices that are regularly deployed in music, suggest that it may be possible for regularities in the visual organisation of the work to structure attentional regularities in the perceptions of the viewer. So it should already be clear that I'm sceptical of such claims, and I now want to sketch out an argument that's intended to show that the graphic arts, in distinction to music and poetry, are non sequential, and that this has important consequences for how a work of graphic art is perceived. <coughs> okay, so musical and poetic rhythms can be notated or otherwise presented in graphic form. Since we're able to identify and experience a rhythm by reading a score or a printed poem. Why should this not also be the case for a work of graphic art, such as a painting? In all three cases, the score, the printed poem and the painting, the object before us is static and spatially organised in two dimensions. It's of course no more than a convention that in the Western tradition, both written text and musical scores are designed to be read from left to right and from top to bottom. However, in order to identify the rhythm of a printed poem or a musical score, we cannot read the words or notes in reverse order or indeed ad libitum in any other order for that would result in most cases if not all in a different rhythm so the question issue is whether graphic art has the same sequential structure as poetry and music is the viewer like the reader or the listener able to follow a predetermined sequence in which the individual characters have been arranged or does graphic art permit a greater freedom of selection concerning the order in which the parts are apprehended? So, I'm just going to show some really simple examples. Um, so, think of the following simple rhythm uh, long, short, short, in simple time, um, where you have a long note followed by two shorter notes uh, in a 2 1 1 proportion. And you can write this in simple, um, simple time or 4 4 time um, as a minim followed by two crotchets. Now, the temporal shape of this rhythm, the long, short, short, um, has a correlate in poetry in the metrical unit or foot termed the dactyl, um, in which a stressed syllable is followed by two unstressed syllables. So dactylic verse is actually comparatively rare in English um, with its long, short, short rhythm, but um, the one that I think everyone knows is from Tennyson's um, "The Charge of the Light Brigade," half a league, half a league, half a league onward. OK, and this is good fun. so um, you probably know this, but the word bactyl derives from the Greek word um, bactylos, uh, meaning finger. And it's sometimes explained through a graphic representation like this. Um, so the spacing of the human finger um, has a long part, a um, phalange here, followed by two shorter parts. Um, and so the term bactylos derives from this, this um, structure of a human finger. Um, So it's initially tempting to think that this figure, or indeed a finger on one's own hand, simply is an articulation of the LSS rhythm in visual form. However, despite the fact that the hand is shown in the diictic gesture of pointing, nothing constrains the viewer to start from the part of the finger closest to the palm rather than from the tip. We can just as well look at the fingertip first, and then allow our gaze to move inward towards the rest of the hand. And this would result in a short, short, long rhythm, or the metrical unit terms in terms of anapest, yep. um, <laughs> which is characterized by two unstressed followed by a stressed syllable. And the word anapest comes from the Greek anapaistos, uh, which means struck back, that's to say, uh, a or reversed. And, uh, and here's the example I can come up with. Um, uh, Doctors use the places you'll go, there is fun to be done, there are points to be scored, there are games to be won. Uh, Okay, and similarly, uh, in the case of music, reading or playing our original example backwards would result in a different temporal pattern: two crotchets followed by a minimum, by a minim. Follows a short-short-long rather than long-short-short short rhythm, since the notes are now in a 1-1-2 one, one, proportion. Okay. So, what these considerations show—or say I wish to argue—is that whereas rhythmic patterns in music and poetry are sequential gaining their specific temporal shape from the order in which they are presented, visual forms do not need to be apprehended in a specific sequence. The shape of a finger remains identical, whether its parts are viewed from left to right, or right to left, or indeed in any order whatsoever. And the same holds for more complex forms, such as the entire hand or the human body. The greater freedom enjoyed by the viewer in relation to works of graphic art it's an important consequence when it comes to identifying rhythmic structure. Um, so if we go back to the Bellorno. So, although the experience of viewing this work unfolds over time, there doesn't seem to be anything inherent in the work itself that can guide or structure the viewer's experience so that the parts are viewed or apprehended in a specific sequence. There are, of course, visual properties that can be used to articulate a stressed, unstressed, unstressed pattern either singly or in coordination, such as dark, light, light, or red, blue, blue, or large, small, small. However, the same pattern can also be read as unstressed, unstressed, stressed, depending on the order in which the viewer apprehends the parts. So if we ask ourselves what is the correct order or sequence in which to view the different parts of this painting, we have no way of knowing where to begin. In short, regularities in the spatial organisation of the painting do not suffice to structure attentional regularities, and it's for this reason I suggest that we cannot move, tap out, or otherwise entrain to the painting's rhythm, and that the experience of viewers diverge in ways that do not permit synchronisation. Okay, so uh, a legitimate objection at this stage um, is to observe that I have focused my discussion exclusively on abstract art. Surely if we turn to figurative painting, there are other resources that are available that can be used to guide the viewer's attention in a particular order or sequence. In the case of large scale multi figure compositions that have a recognizable narrative structure, it seems plausible to suggest that the eyes led from one figure to another in a rhythmic pattern. This thought lies behind Kenneth Clarke's celebrated description of Raphael's cartoon The Miraculous Draft of Fishes, now in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. So I'm going to read this for you, it's a wonderful piece of writing. Um, He says, uh, A rhythmic cadence runs through the whole composition, rising and falling, held back and released, like a perfectly constructed Handelian melody. If we follow it from right to left, we see how the river god, like a stoker, drives us into the group of heroic fishermen, and how the rich, involved movement of this group winds up a coil of energy. Then comes an artful link with the standing apostle, whose left hand is backed by the fisherman's billowing drapery. And then St Andrew himself, forming a caesura, a climax in the line, which holds us back without lessening our momentum. Then at last, the marvellous acceleration, the praying St Peter, to whose passionate movement all these devices have been a preparation and finally the comforting figure of Christ whose hand both checks and accepts St Peter's emotion. Sir Raphael's painting has a relief-like structure in which the figures are aligned in a horizontal band parallel to the picture plane and the planar organisation of the composition allows it to be read from right to left as Clark proposes. It's worth noting, however, that this is a cartoon for a tapestry, and so the composition here is reversed from how it was originally intended to be viewed. In the actual tapestry, commissioned by Pope Leo X for the Sistine Chapel, the figure of Christ is located on the right rather than on the left, and this can be seen from uh, Dorigny's engraving after Raphael. So I mean, this is how the work was intended to be looked. Um, uh, more important for my argument here is the recognition, um, acknowledged, I think, by Clarke and the use of a conditional clause in the way he sets up his argument, that the viewer is not constrained to follow the sequence he identifies. Um, so an alternative reading might identify the rhythmic line as flowing from rather than towards the figure of Christ, whose gesture is received with supplication and astonishment by the two disciples and by the attentive gaze of the first of the fishermen, before the sequence is brought to a close in the reclining figure of the river god. Moreover, since the visual interest of the composition is not restricted to the principal figures, it's possible that the viewer's attention is initially held by the three vigilant cranes in the foreground, before moving upwards to the standing apostle, who is placed just off-centre. Uh, Another viewer might be more interested uh, in identifying the contents of the catch, uh, these fishes and eels in the boats, Uh, the ravens in the sky, what else have we got, Um, or the crabs on the shore. Where are they? Yeah, down here. Um, Perhaps because of the symbolic significance accorded to these creatures in the early modern period. Now, this brief discussion of a single example raises a host of questions, Um, even if, as I have argued, the viewer is free to attend to the parts of the painting in any order, is there nonetheless a correct sequence that must be followed in order to identify the eternal rhythm that links the principal figures to one another? Perhaps this can be identified by a critic such as Kenneth Clarke, and the viewer can be helped to experience it through an accompanying textual or verbal commentary. If so, should we concede normative force to a particular way of viewing a painting, and what might justify privileging one description over another. Perhaps too we might say that a work of graphic art has many rhythms, and that the rhythm of the work depends on the route that the viewer takes through the painting. This would help to explain why entrainment is so rare. However, once we allow that a work of graphic art has a plurality of rhythms, perhaps even an infinite plurality, given the diversity of possible ways of looking at one and the same work, we are close to giving up on the claim that the work has a rhythm, The order of viewing can be from right to left or left to right, but also top-down or bottom-up, centre to periphery, corner to corner, and from any individuated part to another. Moreover, we can focus our attention on the depicted content, on the pictorial marks themselves, or on larger-scale features such as foreground, middle ground and background. And this question opens up onto another larger question concerning the parts of a work of graphic art and how they're to be individuated. I guess the deeper question is: you know, what are the parts of a work? Um, how do we distinguish them from one another? And if we're not terribly good at answering that question, we're going to have difficulty saying that those parts are organised in a specific sequence, which can guide the viewer's uh, attention to that sequence. Um, so, I'm just playing around with this, but this is one way in which we could formulate, reformulate my original claim to take account of this suggestion that a work of graphic art has many rhythms. Um, so, pictorial experience takes place in time, and thus is successive, but it cannot be temporally structured in a sufficiently determinate manner to sustain attentional focus on a determinate sequence of viewing, and thus on one way out of the many possible ways of viewing the work, without relying on extra pictorial guidance. So, given the diversity of ways in which a painting can be viewed, We might wish to ask if there are regularities, whether conventional or otherwise, that inform a normal or standard viewing of pictures, perhaps from left to right or in a Z pattern, and whether this is something that varies across different cultures. We might also want to ask whether there are differences in the ways in which artworks are viewed by expert and non-expert viewers, such as, in the present case, viewers who have knowledge of the biblical narrative or who are familiar with the dominant forms of pictorial composition deployed in the High Renaissance? Will they view the work differently to someone who's a a naive viewer? Okay, so this is on to the third and, I guess, more speculative part of the paper. So, or at least it's speculative in a sense, I'm not quite sure how useful this empirical research is and how it relates to the arguments of the first two parts, but I'm interested in it. Okay, so one way of approaching these questions is to consider the experimental research carried out by cognitive psychologists and other researchers who investigate the human visual processing system. Recent advances in eye-tracking technology and dedicated software programmes allow gaze movements that take place during picture viewing to be analysed in detail, including saccades, fixations and fixation clusters, scan paths and areas of interest. And there are studies, for example, that compare the gaze movements of expert and non-expert viewers under specified control conditions, and they investigate whether there are specific patterns associated with different kinds of depicted content, such as the human figure and the natural environment. The central problem here, of course, is that saccadic eye movements take place below the level of conscious awareness, whereas we are concerned with the relationship between the perception of rhythm and pictorial experience. But as I hope to show, things are not quite so straightforward. Uh, Now, it's a curious fact that uh, current research and visual perception is very rarely discussed by art historians and philosophers of art. In marked contrast to the parallel case of music perception, uh, where the psychology of listening has been intensively studied by musicologists. Um, So I'll give you just one example. Um, Just in London uh, considers the tempo limits within which listeners are able to Individuate the elements that make up a pattern or sequence to determine their number and to determine their duration. Um, So, for sorry, I should explain that a bit. So, what he basically does is he has a rhythm and he slows that rhythm down to the point at which um, auditors can't discern the rhythmic structure anymore, or he speeds it up so the tempo is so fast that they can't discern it. Um, So, he's looking, he's interested in the temporal boundaries within which. Um, uh, a listener can discern a rhythm. And that of course varies from expert to non-expert viewers. But there are maximum and minimum thresholds for tempo limits. OK, I'm just going to quote London and just see if I've got it on my quote. Um, So this is a quote from London, he says, um, It is self-evident that if one cannot make these sorts of discriminations and determinations, one cannot tell one rhythm from another, and hence one cannot be aware of the particular rhythm one is perceiving or has perceived. So I'm interested in finding out whether there's any empirical support for the arguments I've put forward concerning the inherent selectivity of picture perception and its consequences for the identification of rhythm. Um, So again, I'm probably just telling you stuff you know, but um, I think it's interesting. I mean, visual acuity is determined at the most basic level by the anatomy of the human eye. And the key features for our present purposes is the clustering of light sensitive cones in that small area of the retina, termed the fovea, which is just two millimetres in diameter. Um, so, this is you know, the standard textbook illustration of the, um, the distribution of cones. Um, they're basically all here on this tiny two millimetre spot in the retina, and then it falls sharply away as you come here. Um, And the consequence is that it's only within foveal vision, it's only within this very small spot on the back of the retina that we see with any sharpness. Um, So, although foveal vision only encompasses a visual angle of about two degrees, anything that falls within parafoveal vision, near peripheral or peripheral vision, is poorly resolved. Um, Basically, it's it's very blurry and you see it highly and distinctly. So, to compensate for the fact that visual acuity is restricted to the small foveal area, human visual perception is highly dynamic, characterised by discontinuous stepwise movements called saccades, Uh, the term comes from the French word for jerk, saccades and brief fixations which typically last around 200 to 300 milliseconds before the eye moves on again to a new fixation. And the valuable resource of foveal vision is allocated to discrete locations at an average of three or four locations each second. So basically your, your eye is jumping around the whole time. It's more like a hunter-gatherer. It's sampling, gathering little bits of information and then stitching them together. So Rosenberg and Klein note that the definition of a fixation has proved hard to determine. for even during periods of relatively stationary gaze, the eye, car- the eye carries out micro saccades, or what are termed fixation saccades, plus drifts. Um, so, even during these sort of 300 millisecond period, the eye isn't totally at rest. There's still small micro movements taking place. So, the human eye is thus in almost constant motion, controlled by six extraocular muscles, as well as by head and body movements. In short, we do not take in a scene or an object in detail all at once, rather, the eye jumps from one area to another. Gathering high level information that enables the mind to build up a composite picture. Saccadic movements exact a significant cost, since the perceptual system must cope with this rapidly changing flow of information. Nonetheless, as Kawler emphasises, quote, perceptual experience is seamless despite saccades, and the world appears clear and stable. The chaos on the retina does not reach awareness, nor does it impair our ability to perceive the objects around us. OK, so summarising the results of numerous attention studies, um, Massaro and his colleagues conclude, uh, and this is important, that eye movements are an index of overt selection, and as a consequence, they are the expression of the relation between what is observed and its relevance to the viewer's interest. So it's the recognition that eye movements have com- cognitive significance, sorry, so the recognition that eye movements have cognitive significance is one of the reasons uh, why the visual processing system is such interest to psychologists. You know, We direct our attention to those things that matter to us. Now the fact that visual attention unfolds in space and time as a continual alteration between fixards and saccades allows gaze movements to be empirically investigated. And although saccades have been studied since the late 19th century, the first comprehensive attempt to analyse gaze movements during the viewing of pictures was carried out in the 1930s by the American psychologist um, Guy Buswell. It's a very um, uh, poor resolution picture, but you have a sense of just how cumbersome this apparatus must have been. Um, however, many of the lim- limitations imposed by Buswell's reliance on, on uh, his equipment have been overcome by advances in technology and the availability of electronic data processing. Nonetheless, it's important to acknowledge that the vast majority of eye-tracking studies take place in the laboratory environment, with the artworks um, viewed as reduced high-scale resolution images on computer screens, and it's only recently that lighter portable equipment has begun to permit studies to take place in situ in galleries and museums, Um, but it's pretty fast-moving. Now, the headsets are so light that um, the viewer is scarcely aware they're wearing them, um, I think, once the mobility in galleries is allowed. I think that'll make a big difference. Okay, and the second advantage that contemporary researchers possess over the pioneering work carried out by Boswell is the development of software for the statistical analysis of eye tracking data and presenting the results in readily apprehensible visual form. So, um, this is an example of a heat map um, which uses colour coding to show the locations that receive the largest number of fixations. And that's then Overlain on the image itself to visualize results obtained from individual or multiple viewers. So, in this study, researchers compared the result of male view- viewers looking at Bouguereau's Après Le Bain with that of uh, female viewers. Um, and here's the two side by side. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure quite what we learned from the comparison, <laughs> but it's it sort of intriguing. You know, one can see why researchers might want to carry out these sorts of studies. Um, so another method is the use of arrows of different thicknesses uh, to represent the most frequently repeated uh, saccadic transitions. Um, so the eyes jumping around all the time, um, but uh, if a certain transition takes place with sufficient frequency, um, then it can be represented by an arrow. Um, yeah, obviously you need an algorithm for doing this stuff. Now, okay, I think this is interesting. So. Uh, this slide shows uh, Joseph Marie Vienne's altarpiece, uh, Saint Denis, preaching in Gaul. Um, and the visualization was produced by Rosenberg and Klein and his colleagues at the Laboratory for Cognitive Research at the University of Vienna. Um, and this superimposes uh, the saccades of 40 expert and non expert viewers. Um, so, anyone, um, does anyone know why they might have chosen this work by Vienne? No art no, historians in the room. No. Okay, so <laughs> this painting is celebrated amongst art historians because uh, Diderot discusses it uh, in his Salon of 1767. Um, and Diderot identifies this altarpiece as an example of a painting that possesses what he terms uh, a ligne de liaison, uh, a line of liaison or connecting line, which he says clearly, crisply and effortlessly links the composition's principal features. And, uh, and he draws a contrast to this painting uh, by, um, by um, Gabriel Francois Dolly, the miracle of Saint Anthony's Fire, uh, which is painted for the same chapel, uh, the Église Saint Roche in Paris. Um, so they're, they're both in the same chapel and are viewable side by side. So Diderot says of this painting that it has uh, a ligne de liaison that is fractured, bent, folded, and twisted, such that the eye, wandering at random through a labyrinth, bewildered will find it difficult to grasp the connections. So Diderot's use of the term line de liaison bears comparison with Clarke's description of the miraculous draught of fishes. It identifies a compositional line that connects the different parts of the painting in such a way that, when successful, the viewer's eye is led in a continuous sequence from one part to another. Ah, sorry, quick quote from Diderot, he says, uh, A well-ordered composition will always have but one line of liaison, and it will serve as a guide to anyone looking at it, as well as anyone attempting to describe it. And Diderot is not alone in this. You often find it in the art historical literature. It seemed to be an an achievement of the artist that they can structure the composition, uh, especially multi-figure compositions in such a way that the viewer's eye is led through the painting in a well-ordered sequence. Okay, so Rosenberg and Klein set out Essentially, to test this claim. Um, Now, whereas many eye tracking studies are restricted to the first few seconds of viewing time, I mean, often um, just half a second, often max two or four seconds, um, Rosenberg and his colleagues investigated longer periods, ranging from two to 15 minutes. Um, And their studies confirmed the discovery, which had already been made by Buswell. That the, eye, the eye hardly ever moves systematically along a composition line from one end to the other. During picture viewing, the eye fixates for a very brief period on a location of the painting before rapidly moving off to another location. These movements are discontinuous and their ordering does not correspond to the lignes de liaison identified by Diderot. Um, so here's Rosenberg and Klein. The visualizations of gaze movements show that Diderot's analyses as well as similar claims recurring in the art historical literature, do not match the real dynamic of the eye. The gaze jumps from fixation to fixation, moving back and forth. Eyes do not follow any line of composition in a continuous manner, nor do beholders scan paintings from top to bottom, or left to right, continuously. Recast in terms of our earlier discussion, we can say that the temporal ordering of saccades and fixations does not correspond to the spatial ordering of the parts of the painting. At least as far as gaze movements are concerned, there does not seem to be any evidence to support the claim that spatial patterns can be designed in such a way that they are apprehended by the viewer in a temporally ordered sequence. There is, however, an alternative way of approaching Diderot's claims concerning the Lines de Liaison that links the different parts of the painting together. The analysis of extended viewing times enabled Rosenberg and his colleagues to confirm another of Buzzwell's findings, which was that although gaze movements do not follow a temporally ordered sequence, both fixations and saccades tend to repeat identifiable patterns. So most paintings tend to have specific areas of interest that attract a significantly higher density of fixations, and saccades frequently traverse the same pathways. As Rosenberg and Klein observe, for a significant significant number of paintings, and despite major differences between subjects, not only fixations, but also saccades, build patterns that are specific to each painting. Beholders tend to reiterate particular parts with their eyes. And crucially, these patterns do not only occur for single subjects, but are very similar for different subjects viewing the same painting as long as they do so for longer stretches of time. So evidence for this claim is provided by the visualization reproduced here, which shows that a pattern emerges when the saccades of multiple viewers are superimposed. The image visualizes the most frequent saccadic transitions between fixation clusters with the thickness of the line representing the frequency with which a particular pathway is followed. So here, the thickest line, that's the most saccades. And of course, all the small saccades have just been filtered out by the algorithm. Um, It is striking that this graphic representation closely corresponds to Diderot's account of the Ligne de Liaison that links the different parts of Vienne's painting, a finding that Rosenberg rightly describes as astonishing, verblüffend uh, uh, It's the term it uses, in one of the first published reports of their research. The contrast with the painting by Doyen um, is equally informative, for it appears to show um, a broken or discontinuous connection between the principal parts. No, I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool. Um, so, Rosenberg and Klein conclude um, that Diderot's description of the line of composition in Vienne's altarpiece is correct, as long as we consider the frequently repeated saccades and not the actual course of the movement of the eye. The line he describes matches the graph of the most frequent saccadic transitions between clusters of fixations. Okay, so moving to my conclusion now, um, as Rosenberg and Klein emphasise, eye-tracking studies show that the real dynamic of gaze movements does not match the compositional structure of paintings and other works of graphic art. The eye does not follow the lien de liaison in a temporally ordered sequence. Nonetheless, the most frequent circadian transitions do, in many cases, repeat an identifiable pattern, and this is something that emerges or takes shape over an extended period of viewing time. So might this pattern be characterised in terms of rhythm? Clearly it is not a temporal rhythm, a pattern in time, in the sense in which we have been using this term. However, insofar as it identifies an empirically verifiable formal feature that is distinctive to an individual work of art, it can be distinguished from the generalised appeal to rhythm that is to be found, for example, in the writings of Roger Fry. Not only does it guide the allocation of visual attention by the individual viewer as this takes place over time, the same pattern of allocation is also shared by other viewers. So there's, it's not entrainment, but it has some, some homologies. Um, and the pattern is spatial, not temporal, but it does give structure to pictorial experience as something inherently durational. Okay. So I think this recognition goes some way to meeting our intuition. There can be spatial as well as temporal rhythms, and that certain works of graphic art have a pronounced rhythmic structure or rhythmic line that connects the different parts. The felt experience, or what we might term the subjective subjective awareness of viewing a painting, is informed by, and in turn informs, the movements of the eye, but these do not directly correspond. Okay, so back to my early suggestion um, that there are some cases in which the attribution of rhythm um, to a work of graphic art is connected to our awareness of the movement through which the mark or marks were made. So a, tw- a sweeping or twisting drawn line invites us to imagine the impulse of the hand that guided the brush or the pen. Just as short hatch marks invites us to imagine the repetitive motion through which they are inscribed. Nonetheless, there are many cases in which such forms of imaginative engagement are deliberately impeded or turn out to be misleading. So here we might think of the high level of fini or uh, finish achieved by French academic painters such as Angre or Bouguereau, who aspired to achieve, this a horrible term, a, a leche or a, a licked finish in which no individual brush strokes are visible. And at the other end of the extreme, um, uh, sorry, at the other extreme, The use of bold, vigorous mark-making to communicate a sense of agitation, such as in the work of the German expressionists, is often achieved through careful reworking, thereby breaking the apparent correlation between the movement of the hand and the marks on the surface of the canvas. Um, So I think there are some examples, I just don't think it can provide the basis for an account that's going to apply across the board in the graphic arts more fruitful perhaps for an account of rhythm that is applicable across the graphic arts rather than just some instances, is the appeal to the role of the imagination. Now, consider for example, I've held back on mentioning Roger Scruton, people always groan when he comes into a discussion, but it's a useful quotation. So Scruton says, musical experience involves the importation of a spatial framework and the organisation of the musical field in terms of position, movement and distance. These spatial concepts do not literally appear to the sounds we hear. Um, So think for example of a melody, we think of a melody as rising, la 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 la, but it doesn't rise in space, there is no spatial movement. So these spatial concepts do not literally apply to the sounds we hear. Rather they describe what we hear in sequential sounds when we hear them as music, in other words, the concepts that provide the fundamental framework for musical perception were applied metaphorically. So Scruton's argument suggests the possibility of a neat reversal. If spatial concepts are applied metaphorically to provide the fundamental framework for musical experience, perhaps temporal, temporal concepts are applied metaphorically to provide the fundamental framework for pictorial experience. OK, I just throw that out there, really. I think, you know, you need a much fuller account of what's going on there if we're going to understand what it would mean for temporal concepts to apply metaphorically to the experience of looking at the picture i'm just saying i'm not closed off to that so for the time being then i'm going to stick to my skeptical conclusion um, i don't by any means uh, think that this is the last word Inten- instead it's really intended to lay down a challenge to those who believe that the concept of rhythm as this is standardly understood can simply be extended to encompass works of graphic art and once you're sensitised to this, um, you see that people unthinkingly simply describe works of visual arts rhythmic. Um, art criticism is shot through with it. Artists use the term to describe their work or to label their work. And I, um, you know, what I hope to have done at least is to show that the issues are more complex than are normally recognised. Okay, great, thank you. <laughs>